Welcome to the Rock of Grace Warren podcast. I want to thank you for joining us. I hope this message inspires you. I hope it builds your faith and helps you to see that God is moving in your life. Enjoy the message. But we started a few weeks back uh, with a series uh, called Launch, and it was about this idea. Week one was this idea that God has something new he wants to bring us into, right? And that new thing has to be something that we embrace. And the only way we can do that is uh, to embrace it the right way. We have to close the doors to our yesterday's past. We have to shut that door. We have to lock it, and we have to throw away the key, right? The second thing we have to do is we have to have an unshakable faith and trust in, one, who Jesus says he is, because that's important, right? That's a faith-building moment. And number two, that he can do exactly what his word says he can do. Because if he ceases to do either of those things, if he violates his word, then he's not God, and we should stop worshiping him. But the good news is, is he's never once violated his word. Week two, we kicked off this, uh, we kind of furthered the conversation with this idea that we have to follow the leader in our lives. If we're going to accomplish the thing that God has set in our hearts to accomplish, then we have to get in tune with his voice in our lives. The beautiful thing about the Christian faith, unlike any other faith that's out there, is that our God is alive and he speaks to us, right? He talks to us. And Galatians 1.5 talks about that uh, we have to get in step with the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I, I kind of uh, illustrate treated it like this. If, if I'm out and we were out in the snow after snowpocalypse last Sunday and, uh, you know, my kids wanted to go out and my, my sweet dog wanted to go out. My dog's terrified of anything that's, that, that does not resemble grass. And until I shoveled him a path to where he goes to the bathroom, he just looked at me like, what do you want me to do? And so I would go out there and I would put my feet down and my son, who is much smaller footed than I am, would use my tracks to know where he was supposed to go so he didn't sink into the snow. And the same thing is true about God in our lives. God is speaking to us every day and we as believers have the responsibility to look for that footprint and put our foot in it so we know exactly where we're supposed to go. The three primary ways God will speak to you is one, through his word. His word comes alive to us. The Bible says that it's living and active. It's actually sharper than any two-edged sword, right? And it talks to us, and there's something new in it every time we open the Bible. The second way he'll speak to us is through other people and in situations that are usually there to confirm something that God is already talking to our hearts about. And the third way, and one of the greatest ways I think God speaks to us, is directly to us in our hearts, through our, in our spirit. And when we get in tune with the voice of God in our lives, like we're dialing in a radio station, then we hear him clearer, and we can then move in the direction that he's called us to. Amen? Week three, we talked a little bit about how we overcome fear. And if we're going to get the promises of God in our life, then we have to understand that when we operate in fear, we only delay those promises, and we end up missing the opportunity that God creates. But the beautiful thing is, is that we overcome fear through the perfect love of Jesus and the unshakable faith that we have in him. Amen. So I want to conclude this series this morning uh, with a phrase that, there we go, if technology wants to cooperate, that if you do take notes, you are taking notes this morning, this is the overarching phrase or theme that I built this message around. God loves to use the unlikely. 
God loves to use the unlikely. And that's going to be the building block of our conversation this morning. Because on some level, we've all found ourselves as the unlikely in a given circumstance. And the beautiful thing about that this morning is that if you think that you might be the unlikely choice for something, you are probably positioned exactly where God has you and wants to use you in. I want to read to you a, quick, a couple of quick stories. There was a woman named Samantha. Uh, she's from Alabama. Okay? And Samantha was laying on her, uh, she was at home, she was lying on her couch, and she was taking a nap. Maybe she was tired, it was the middle of the afternoon. And out of nowhere, a rock shot through Samantha's uh, roof and struck her or grazed her in the leg. She survived. And she gathers this rock, and she notices that it does not look like any other rock she has ever seen before. Uh, so she takes this rock, and she has it examined, and it was determined to be a meteorite from outer space. True story, not making this up at all. So this fragment of a meteorite breaks off somewhere in outer space, makes it through our atmosphere, goes through her roof, and grazes her leg. Now listen. They said that the likelihood of a meteorite striking a human, right, is 1 in 9,000. But that's not 9,000 people. Because 1 in 9,000 people means a lot of people are getting struck by meteors every day. And I hope that's not happening. Or we have a much larger problem we need to contend with out there. All right? There's the whole chicken little sky. That's like a real thing at that point. Not 9,000 people. But rather, it happens one in every 9,000 years. So it would be safe for me to say this morning that that event happening to Samantha from Alabama, right, is highly unlikely. Let me tell you, let me tell you another story this morning. There was a husband and wife in 2002, and they were from California. And on the same day, they won two completely different lotteries. They got their lotto ticket, they were tuning in, and they won two completely different lotteries. The first uh, one lottery that they won was something called the Fantasy Five. I, I, I'm pretty sure it has to do with football. Uh, but she won this lottery, he won this lottery for just over $100,000. The other lotto that they won was a lottery uh, called the uh, Super Lotto Plus for just over $17 million, right? Like, come on now. <laughs> Odd makers said that the odds of that unlikely event happening are not 1 in 24 million, not 1 in 24 billion, but rather 1 in 24 trillion. Like, come on now. Like, if I'm part of that, like, I'm trying to move in with that family. Like, you must be blessed, lucky, you must have done something right or something. I don't know, but you want to look. Can I just, just give me, like, a percent, like, like half a percent, right? And I'll be happy. One in 24 trillion. Like, incredible. And this morning, I want to further the thought in our minds that God loves to do things with unlikely people in unlikely times for unlikely reasons. Listen, uh, we, we've been in this season of, of COVID-19. Um, if, if, unless you've been living under a rock the last couple years, uh, 
Um, and if you have been, you're probably blessed for it. Um, but we have this, this thing called COVID-19, and regardless of where you fall on all of it, it's, a, it, it's real and it happened. It seems like where our nation is living in a crisis, elections are, are, are this way and that way. Everybody's talking about it. We're living uh, in what they say is the highest rate of inflation in over 40 years. Uh, over the summer, the last couple years, there's been riots everywhere. Um, all of these things... And I would, when you look at them on the outward, it looks like this big bundle of messy chaos. And some might even ask the question, where is God in all of this, right? Has anybody ever kind of watched too much of like the news and been like, oh my gosh, the world is ending, where is God, right? Like there can be enough that goes wrong in our lives and enough nationally and globally that make us step back and say to ourselves, are you paying attention up there? Right, But I want to tell you this morning that with all of that going on in the world, and that doesn't even include the personal stuff that's going on in each of our individual lives, because that has a tendency to have a uh, way on us in an even greater way than the stuff that really doesn't always touch our lives. I want to tell you this morning that even in the middle of all of that, that you, that me, that the church is in a prime position for God to do something unlikely. Fun fact for you. Did you know that the term, or the year rather, 2020, has become an urban synonym for things that are crazy, bad, and dangerous? (laughs) So nowadays, this is what people say. And I remember hearing this in, in, I used to, I was a youth pastor in Indianapolis for the last eight years before I moved back to Ohio. And I remember people would say, you know, every teenager has some kind of relationship and then it doesn't work out because 99% of teenage relationships fail. Um, And my teenagers loved when I taught them that or told them that. And they always would look at me and say, we're going to defy the odds. I said, okay, I give you six weeks. And, And sure enough, within six weeks, that thing was broken up. And they would come to me and they would say things like, that guy or that girl is 2020 crazy. And I'm like... What? I wasn't up on the newest, you know, phrases and slang at the time, but that word or that year has been adopted as a way to communicate to a culture that we are living in an abundance of crazy, an abundance of chaos. And we understand from Scripture that God is not the author of chaos, right? But I love that God operates in perfect peace even in the middle of chaos. So we can identify God in chaos because we identify it through his peace in our lives. So we're going to move the conversation this morning beyond the random facts and stories of of people beating the odds. And I want to move into the way that God moves and uses people. Because it seems, uh, at least from my understanding of Scripture, that God uses unlikely things or instruments. All you have to do is read the Old Testament to discover that Moses was an unlikely choice, number one. But there was a portion in Genesis where Moses has to go before Pharaoh and he has to tell them, Hey, look, you need to free the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity and slavery because God is telling me that I'm supposed to tell you that you got to let them go. And Moses looks at God and is like, God, you're crazy. I'm not even capable of doing that. And God talks with them and, and gives them this beautiful statement of, tell them I am sent you. Right? And so they have this dialogue. And at one point, Moses is like, what do I have that I can show Moses, or that, rather that I can show Pharaoh, 
that, that you're with me. And God responds to Moses and says, well, what do you have in your hand? Right? And Moses has a, a stick, essentially. It's his walking stick. So God uses an unlikely guy named Moses with an instrument that one would use for walking that you would literally pick up in the woods and say, you know what, this is a good walking stick. To go into Pharaoh's palace that is heavily guarded with people with real weapons like swords to communicate that I'm not messing around and I mean business, right? God will use unlikely places in our life. It's interesting that we discover that Jesus is from Nazareth. Because in the New Testament, when people were to describe Nazareth, they would make phrases like, can anything good come from Nazareth? It was not on the list of highly respectable places where one would look for a savior to come. And lastly, God uses unlikely people. I know I mentioned Moses a moment ago, but look at Gideon, look at David, even look at Jesus. You're telling me that Joseph, the, uh, or that Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter, is the savior of the world? And God's like, yeah, that's my boy, that's him. Let's bring it local this morning. Look at Warren. So you want me, God, with a bunch of people that maybe have never really done ministry together in the middle of a pandemic where church attendance is nationally declining in a downtown of a city that is in bad need of a a revitalization with people who are more strapped for cash than at any other time in the last 40 years. Not only that, you want me to launch the church in January in Northeast Ohio? <laughs> right? Like, you know, you saw the snow this morning, God. <laughs> right? Amen. Challenge accepted. Right? Why? Because it's not for me to question the leading of God, it's for me to say yes to God and trust that he knows what he's doing. And everything, listen, everything on paper looks like it's not going to work out. Let me just, and this is not us bragging this morning, but nationally, most, most people that have done church planning before say it takes 12 to 18 months to plant and launch a healthy church. We launched the church in eight months. I like to think we're healthy. <laughs> Right, but it it doesn't look like like if you're listing like all of the places you want to plant a church in 2022. I don't know how high Warren, Ohio ranks on that list, but when God speaks something to you, it resonates so strong in your spirit, in your heart, and in your mind, you can't help but be drawn to it because you know that if He's the one leading it, then no matter what happens, it's going to be successful. I want to tell you this morning that people often marvel at the unlikely. And this is kind of how it goes. In the beginning, they will gossip and they will make comments about someone's ability to do something. And we've all met people like that. I call them the whisperers, the spiritual whisperers. Right? Because you'll see it. Someone will come get saved from a rough past, and God will start looking at them and using them in ministry or to do something incredible. And you'll have the people that sit on the front row, not you, 
you're my wife. <laughs> and they'll be like, they're the whispers. You, they'll make their little, you know, are they really going to be able to like, like come on, why did they put that person up there? Why are they using so-and-so? Why did that, why, do you know what they did in their past? Do you know who their parents are? Do you know what their yesterdays looked like? And they'll start talking about all of the reasons why that person, without ever getting to know them, are disqualified from the thing that God has positioned them to be doing. And that's how it starts. They'll say things like, there's no way they're going to be able to do that. And they'll they'll make comments about the person's past. They never are future-thinking people, but they are stuck in somebody's yesterdays. And God would say back to them, I don't even remember their yesterday, so why are you talking about something that I've already forgotten about? The Bible says that he's cast our sins as far as the east is from the west and that he throws them in the sea of forgetfulness. So the things that you get kept, keep getting bound up in your mind, God's like, I don't even remember that because I forgave you of it and I chose to keep no record of wrong against you. And so they'll make these statements. They'll say they aren't the right person to do that or they don't have the right amount of education. Or there's no way they're going to be able to do that. Do you know their history? They, they, they are a screw-up. And what we have a tendency to do at times is to disqualify people before we ever get to know people. And then what happens is God begins to use them and they see the fruit of God using them come to life. And all of a sudden, their perspective shifts because nobody wants to be the the naysayer when somebody's successful. They may say, and remember, these are the outside observers, the whispers, the onlookers of the crowd. Usually, it's those people who at one time aspired to do something on their own, but they never accomplished it. And so they got bitter, jaded, and cynical because of it. But when that person finally accomplishes what they set out to do, they marvel like they had been for you all along. They'll say things like, I totally knew they could do that. I knew they had it. I'm not surprised at all that they got where they are going. If you knew what they went through growing up, you shouldn't be surprised by where they are either. And so it shifts in them because they want to get on the bandwagon of success. It's the same thing we do with sports, unless you're a Cleveland Browns fan, and then the bandwagon doesn't exist. Because it's always got some kind of flat tire. <laughs> and I love the Browns. Like, I'm a huge Brown fan. Go Baker. Yeah, rehab the shoulder, please. Um, but God loves to use the unlikely to accomplish his plans for the world. Let me further illustrate this thought to you this morning. Imagine, if you will, God walking out onto the porch of heaven. Like, heaven's like this big, like, like, wraparound porch where God like sits and drinks sweet tea with a in a rocking chair apparently <laughs> that's that's the kind of God I hope there's some sweet tea up in heaven and uh, <laughs> Chick-fil-a is open seven days a week you know we're eating God's chicken in heaven right and God walks out onto the porch of heaven and all these angels are gathered around him and God looks down and he's like I need somebody to accomplish something great for me in 2022. And the angels also look down, and they start kind of picking out their preferred candidates, right? Well, this person's got this degree, and this person's got this, and they have money, and they're this and that. And God ignores all of it. And he looks at the unlikely, the outcast, the one that's written off, the one that doesn't make sense to human wisdom. 
And he says, you know what? Yep, that's my girl, and that's my that's who I'm choosing to use. And I'll tell you this morning that the reason God has a tendency to use the unlikely of a generation is because the unlikely can only but give glory back to him. And that's what we have to wrap our brains around, that when God uses us and he positions us to do something that impacts the world, it's not for us to build our own kingdom, but rather it's to point people back to the feet of Jesus. Let me give you some more examples this morning. I want to build this thought in your mind. So I want to take you back to England in 1738, right? It's a long time for some of us ago. None of you were alive, I hope, or I'm going to have a lot of questions. But during, in England, and during the 1700s, the early 1700s, there was something going on called the gin craze, this, this alcohol that they were producing in large quantities. So much so that on a year-by-year basis, the average person was drinking over 2.2 gallons of the stuff a year. I'm not talking about a little bit of drunkenness. I'm talking like... Everybody and their mom was drunk like 24 hours a day. And in, in uh, London at the time, there were 7,000 what they called gin bars. And people would get off work if they even went to work in, in, at the time. And they would go and they would just spend all their money and all their time drinking all day long. And it was a terrible place to live. Crime was uh, uh, everywhere, Uh, all of this crazy stuff was going on. And God looked down and said, I need somebody that I can raise up and help get this thing back on track. And I want to point you to a man this morning named John Wesley. And if you know anything about John Wesley's history, you would discover that he was a fallen and failed missionary, that he was on his way back from Georgia in the States to England after he fled for his life. He would write in his diary on the boat back to England, he says, I went to Georgia to save the Indians, but who will save me? He was depressed, he was down on his luck, He was failed at what he had set out to do originally. And he flees for his life and he gets put on a ship back to England so the wealthy landowner in Georgia doesn't kill him because he refused to serve that man's daughter communion. And historically, what he did was when there was only two, really one way to to not be given communion, in the church that he was a part of. And so if the pastor or priest at the time refused to serve you communion, he was communicating to the congregation that that individual was uh, promiscuous in her dealings with the opposite sex. And so he does this publicly to this wealthy landowner's daughter because the wealthy landowner's daughter doesn't want anything to do with them. And John Wesley's like, well, I'll show you. And so he flees for his life and he's depressed. He's even questioning his own salvation. I would tell you this morning that in spite of all that, now we would look at John Wesley and say, you're not the guy. Like there's nothing about you that says I can 
fix this issue going on in England. But what if I told you this morning that John Wesley was the precise person that God raised up, and when he gets back to England, John Wesley is responsible for ushering in a powerful revival that spread across the world. John Wesley was an unlikely this morning. Now let's bring it to the States. Let's bring it to 1798 and the frontier. This was, and I'm not talking about like going out west. At the time in 1798, the western frontier consisted of places like Tennessee and Kentucky. And in those places, they were riddled with terrible alcoholism. They were stealing from everybody. Uh, uh, Cowboys would go into, and outlaws, it's a real thing. They would go into these log cabin homes. They would boot out the family, and they would take over, and they would steal all of their possessions. Murders and all of these different things were running rampant in these towns. And I would tell you this morning that God, in all of these states, raised up these tiny little rural churches and the pastors of those churches, and they got together, and they said, you know what, we've got to do something about that. We don't have a lot of money, we don't have a lot of people, but I know the God we serve is bigger than this mess, and so because he's big, even if we're small, we can do something about this. And those few churches that got together, they were responsible for what is called the Cane Ridge Revival that brought in 20,000 people from the state of Tennessee and Kentucky in the known uh, North America at the time in salvation. Salvation after salvation took place. Let's bring it into a little bit more of a modern context. 1967. Most people would consider those to be terrible times in our country. They were filled with, they were filled with riots. They were filled with drugs. Vietnam War was going on. And it was around that same time that Martin Luther King was shot. I want to bring you to San Francisco. They called it the summer of love. People were going out there. It was the hippie movement. And people were going out there, and they were discovering love. It was supposed to be this big love fest. And what it gave way to was in the, in the history, something that history would record as the Zodiac Killer. People began being trafficked. The rise of prostitution, uh, drug addiction took place in rampant ways. Talk about an unlikely time in history for God to do something. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, why then, God? Why now? What if I told you that in that 1967-68 era where all of those things were coming, uh, that God would raise up these hippies that didn't believe in shoes. There was no shoes. Long, shaggy hair, beards, no shoes, Right? that God would raise them up, radically save them, and it would give way to what we consider or what we call in history the Jesus movement, which would, would give birth to what we call the charismatic renewal. On paper, these people, these, these individuals, these places in history don't look like the best choice. But I want you to remember this morning that God uses unlikely people. He did it then, and he's still in the business today of doing it. Amen? Sometimes God will use your biggest critics to serve as your greatest motivation. There is truth to wanting to prove the crowd wrong. Like, I don't know how you're wired this morning, but my personality is if somebody tells me I can't do something, my natural tendency is to want to prove them wrong. Like, 
anything. No, you can't climb Mount Everest. I'll do it tomorrow. Like, as soon as I get, just put me on the mountain. We'll figure it out. I totally would die. Don't let me do it, okay? <laughs> just so you know, don't let me do it. But I, so I wanted, I've wanted to be a youth pastor. I wanted to be a youth pastor since I was 13 years old. And so everything I, I did kind of growing up was to get ready for that. And there was a close pastor friend of mine, really well-intentioned person. But one day, and I was excited. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to Bible call. I'm going to do all these things. And he looked at me. And he wasn't malicious or mean. It wasn't, it wasn't anger or any kind of like, let me hurt your feelings. But he looked at me and he said, I don't think you would make a great or a good youth pastor. <laughs> right? Like crushing. Because since I was 13, and I was probably 18 at the time getting ready for college. And ever since I was a teenager, that's what I felt like God had asked me to do. And it was crushing to me. But there was something in that crushing that produced a motivation in me that says, you know what? You're entitled to your opinion, but I'm going to prove you wrong. And so for the last 12 years, between Kentucky and Indiana, I had the honor, privilege, whatever you want to call it, of being in full-time ministry as a youth pastor. And all along the way, every youth group we pastored, my wife and I pastored, either doubled or in some cases tripled in size. We would see students saved and plugged into serving, filled with the Holy Spirit, and we were helping disciple them. Now listen, I don't say that to you to brag this morning on any level. I tell you that to hammer home the idea that God will use your critic and your naysayer to motivate you so that you reach the highest level of potential that he's called you to. I want to read to you this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Some of you are like, is you ever going to use the Bible this morning? I promise you I am. It's there. It's written down. I just took a long time to build up to it. So now you're really excited about the Bible. I'm going to read to you out of the message version. I don't make that a habit, but uh, on the screen, it's going to be in the New American Standard Version. I just like some of the way the message paints this picture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 to 31. It says, take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. It says, I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you. Not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? It says, choose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have this saying. If you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. 
What that passage of scripture is communicating, and you have to remember who Paul is writing to in this particular story. He's writing to the Corinthian church. If you know anything about the town of Corinth back in the day, it was like the seedbed for any type of sinful activity you would ever want to participate in. And people were getting saved out of these really dark, sinful places. Right, And Paul is trying to communicate to them, listen, God is bringing you out and he's launching you into something new and something extraordinary and something that you've never been before. You were once workers for darkness, but now God's brought you out and he's making you workers for his light in his kingdom. But listen, don't think that's because of you. And it says that if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord because God could have picked all of these other people, but because he didn't, he chose you. And in choosing you, you have the privilege to give the glory back to him. You looked at yourself and said, you know what? It's unlikely that I would do that, but God, right? So God said, you know what? That's the right kind of person that I want because I know I don't have to share the glory that's for me with that person that they will give it back to me because I called them out. Does that make sense? I'm preaching now, right? TBN will charge you 40 bucks for that. It's free today. Next week is 30 bucks. I'm just kidding. You want to know how you leave your haters speechless? You want to know how to blow their minds? This, it's simple. You go out and you accomplish the very thing that, that they said you could never do. If they wrote you off, you say, you know what? I may not be able to do it in my own ability, and there's nothing on paper that says I should succeed, but I gave my life to Jesus, and I've been on this wild ride with him, and I just have this faith that says I'm going to be able to accomplish it regardless of what you stand there and say I can't do. Let me give you real quickly three characteristics of unlikely people. Unlikely people embrace their imperfections. God is not looking for perfect. Rather, God is looking for surrendered. And there is a distinction that Scripture makes with regard to perfection. See, the Bible says things to the effect of be holy, for I am holy. Really, when translated, it's be perfect, for I am perfect. But the expectation and burden is not placed on the believer because God knows that you can't attain perfection this side of heaven apart from Jesus. So what he says to us is, as you grow, allow me to remake you in the image of my son so that you become a better representation of me. Will you be perfect? No, because Romans says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But that rather, when people look at you, they see my son fully alive in you. So they embrace their imperfections. Their contentment is in pleasing God, not in perfection. And listen, that's not an excuse to sin. On any level, God's not like, all right, you go out and do whatever you want. I'll use you in spite of it all. And you're like, all right, challenge accepted. Let's see how bad I can be. That's not what that is talking about. But rather, the Bible is filled with imperfect people who do incredible things for God. Moses, prior to Moses being Moses, was a murderer. Jacob was a deceiver. David was an adulterer. Saul, who became Paul, was a persecutor of Christians, and the list goes on and on and on. Why? Because God is in the habit of using the unlikely people to do incredible things. The second thing I want you to understand this morning is unlikely people aren't afraid to take a risk. If you've ever endeavored to do anything great for God, it will require some level of risk. 
God is not in the business of the easy way out, the shortcut, or, or the quick way to get somewhere. No successful person ever became successful without taking a risk. The old saying is still true to this day. Without risk, there can be no reward. And there are opportunities that God creates in our life where we get to step out of the boat and onto the water and experience something supernatural. You think Peter was like, oh my gosh, look at me on the water. There was a risk involved in that, but what happens is you allow your faith to override the risk, and that risk then turns into reward because your faith is what carried you. Number three is unlikely people know how to shoot their shot. These people are often passionate. They're willing to give everything to it to succeed. And they, have been, uh, they are the, often the people that have been written off by others. And when they get their chance, they make the most of it. It's never wasted or taken for granted. I don't know about you this morning, but I'm 34 years old. I've been saved since I was 10. And I still want to live my life to please God. When I get up in the morning, listen, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes every single day of my life. Just spend some time with me and you will experience them. I promise. But in my heart of hearts, when I look at my life, I sit back and say, you know what, God? If this is the opportunity you've created and given to me, then I'm going to make the most of it. And so I'll surrender my will and what I want so that I can achieve, God, what you have for me. Let me wrap this up for you. You may be sitting here thinking that you are the unlikely choice of God. That you're somehow disqualified from God's service. I want to ask you two questions this morning as we close. The first of which is, if not you, then who? If not you, then who? We have to get to the place in our faith where we stop waiting for the person next to us to do the thing that God called us to. You know, I used to hear things growing up in church like, you know, we have this need that needs to be met or, you know, we need to raise this money and, or we need to purchase this so we can be a better, you know, uh, community partner, all of those things. And I used to sit there thinking, I don't have that or I can't do that or, you know, that's for somebody else. And God convicted me of that by the Holy Spirit and said, why can't it be you? The second thing, the first thing is if it's not you, then who? The second thing I want to just challenge you with or ask you this morning is, if not now, then when? Because all you have to do is look at the chaos of 2020, 2021, and what apparently is shaping up to be another interesting year in 2022. And you could sit there and say, you know what, God, you're, I don't know what you're doing in this situation. I don't, are you even paying attention? And God's up in heaven. He's like, this is the perfect moment for me to show the world what I can accomplish through my church. And understand this morning, the church is not the building. When the Bible speaks of the term church, the Greek word used is ekklesia, which is speaking to the gathering of a body of believers. Some scholars would actually take it as far to tell you that it's a military term that means a prepared army ready to advance forward. So when we talk about the church, it's not 137 Vine Avenue in our beautiful 130-year-old building. 
Like, this thing's holding up, right? <laughs> Please don't come down. <laughs> what it's saying is, I'm going to bring people together from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds that have a hundred and different stories that are going to look at things from a hundred different perspectives. And I'm going to unify them in a way that when they go out into a dark community like Warren, they're going to push back darkness with light and they're going to see a city radically saved and transformed. It looks to the world like it's unlikely. You're telling me that with all of the chaos going on, it's not going to come through science. It's not going to come through the government. It's not going to come through the deep pockets of the wealthy, but rather it's going to come through the church. I will stand here unashamedly tell you this morning that that is 100% correct. If we're ever going to see the nation that we are born and raised in and have come to love turned back for God, that it can only but come through his people. You with me this morning? It's Pentecostal church. You're allowed to shout. The only thing you're not allowed to do is shake a tambourine. It messes me up. I heard a quote, and I'm going to pray after this. I heard a quote, and it went like this. It says, an effective church, and we'll throw it up there for you. It says, an effective church makes such an impact in a city that if that church were removed, the people would mourn its loss. I want people to say that about this campus. Not because I want glory I could care less who knows my name. My last name is Pitts. It's not real fat. <laughs> I mean, like, like, you don't need to see that in any, you know, any kind of print. <laughs> I want people in this city, I want them to feel our impact. I want people to see us as a safe place that they can count on. And I want people to feel it if we weren't here anymore. You know, someone asked me when we were planting the church, as we were out in the community, someone asked me, they said, how long do you plan on being downtown? Are you going to be like the other, some of the other churches that are, and I'm not bashing any other churches this morning. They did what they needed to do and, and what they felt like God was leading me. So it's, it's, I'm, not, I'm not bashing anybody, but the, the person came at it from the perspective of, are you just going to be here for a short time and then leave? And I looked at them and I said, no, this is where God called us to be. And we expect to be here for the long haul with you. And if you're, if you're considering making this campus your home or you've already made that decision, then I want you to know that we're about to move into a season where we take on this community in love and we look to push back darkness with the light of Jesus. Not so we are known, not so we're in papers or on news channels, but so that the kingdom of Jesus and the God we serve is highlighted in an extraordinary way. You know, I was leaving Indianapolis. We were there for eight years and loved it. My kids were born there. They didn't even know what Ohio was. They're like, what's Ohio? I said, only the, only the greatest state you'll ever live in where you'll be constantly disappointed by all of the sports teams at once. <laughs> and they're like, what? I said, just give it time. You'll learn. <laughs> go, go Bengals. Yay. No. <laughs> just kidding. Actually, I watched like I was happy for them. No, I wasn't. Either way. <laughs> Um, someone, they, one of my friends asked me, like, why are you going back to Warren, Ohio? Like, nobody knows 
you know, if, unless you live around there, like, what's, what's worse, Warren? I used to tell people when they were like, where are you from? I used to say, I'm from Cleveland because people know Cleveland because it's, you know, it's a large city. And I'm, really, I'm like, I'm from Warren. They're like, where's Warren? I'm saying, it's just Cleveland. It's fine. And they're like, why do you want to go back to Warren? And, I, and other than saying, you know, it's my hometown, I really didn't have a good answer for them at the time. So I would just say things like, it's my hometown, it's where my family's at, you know, all those things. But now, if someone asks me, why Warren? You know what I'm going to tell them? I'm going to tell them that Warren might just be the most unlikely place that God could use to usher in a revival. And if that's the case, then you better believe I'm going to get in line and be a part of it. So I'll plant a church in Warren. I'll go wherever, God. But if you call me to Warren and it's not on, people don't know about it. People have never had the pizza here, right? The Briar Hill pizza that has no real cheese on it. I try to describe, they're like, what kind of cheese? I'm like, oh, it's just like sprinkled cheese and some peppers. Like, what's the, why would you eat? I don't know. I just grew up doing it. (laughs) Right? That's why. Because God is in the business of using the unlikely. And I don't know what's been, what's transpired in your life or things you've been facing or dealing with. I just want this message to be an encouragement to you that one, God's not written you off and disqualified you. We've not written you off and disqualified you, but we are looking for you to charge up and get in the fight with us. Amen. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Flip side for one minute. Just turn that over. An effective church is a bunch of unlikely people that impact a city in such a way that its, that its city celebrates the life of love it shares in the community. You see, we're not going somewhere that they would mourn our loss. We've just arrived. We've just arrived, and it's just begun. But we will be the effective church of unlikely people who impact a city of Warren so that it celebrates the life of love we give to our community. Amen. All across the room this morning, I just want you to close your eyes. If you're comfortable, lift your hands for me. Because this message, this series has been an opportunity for us to say yes to the plan, the promise, and the potential that God has for our lives. And some of that is on a corporate level as the campus, but for many, it's on an individual level to say, you know what, God, if there's still breath in my lungs, then I know you're not done with me yet. Regardless of my yesterday, regardless of even my weekend, God, I'm positioned now through your grace and your mercy to accomplish something extraordinary for your, for your kingdom. So right now, Father, in this room, I declare over these incredible people that, Lord, you would move mightily, that you would show up in an incredible way, and that you would meet us, uh, Father, wherever we are at, that there is nothing that, Lord, uh, is disqualifying us today from you meeting and moving in our life. That, But, Father, we would see you, Lord God, in all of your glory and your splendor, and that, Lord, you would show up and show out in such... 
a powerful way that we would see the hearts and lives of others changed. That, Lord, as we lay our lives down, that you, Father, would help us, Lord, to reflect Jesus more. Lord, that may be saying no to some friends and some relationships in our lives. That, Father, that may be saying no to some outings and some weekend hangouts and some things we used to do in the life we laid down. But, Lord, as we take on the new life, as your word says that we put on Christ like we put on clothes every day, that we would begin to reflect to this city your goodness and your pleasure in our lives, that you love us with an everlasting love, that your mercies are brand new evermore, every morning, and your grace is abounding, and that as we push out into a community, Lord God, as we push out in your glory and in your spirit's leading, that, Father, you would meet us. Lord, bless every person in this room today. Love on them today. We cancel every con, uh, lie and every word of condemnation the enemy is speaking over them. Every word that says you can't, every word that says that you shouldn't, every word that says if they just knew what you were doing, they wouldn't love you anymore. I cancel all of those lies over these people today, but that they would be the free and forgiven of the Lord. We honor you, Father. And we celebrate you in Jesus' name. All across the room, what you said? Amen. Will you do me a favor? Will you just celebrate Jesus this morning? Will you clap your hands and shout? Just, just celebrate Jesus today. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, there are a couple things I would love for you to do. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can also help us reach others by investing today by going to give.rockofgrace.org. And thanks again for joining us on the Rock of Grace Warren podcast.